Welcome, my name is Loriana Hernandez Aldama, two-time cancer survivor and patient advocate, and you are listening to Stage Free, a place where we help cancer patients find the tools and resources they need to master survival. Cancer survivorship begins the day you are diagnosed. Over time, you may beat it or you may learn to live with it. Whatever the outcome, you probably wanna talk about it, and that's where we can help. Each week, I will share my insights and personal experience along with notable experts and cancer survivors. Together, we can help patients navigate the complicated road all survivors must travel. The goal, we want everyone to have an equal chance to not only survive, but most importantly, to thrive. Welcome back to Stage Free. I am so excited to share and introduce our next guest to you. She has a lot of titles, a lot of titles to me, a lot of titles to so many people. She is an incredible nurse. She is a hero. She is my Shiro. She is my nurse for my leukemia battle at Johns Hopkins from 5B, the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center. She's a rock star. They're all rock stars on that floor. And now the head nurse of oncology at Tidelands Health in South Carolina. And a nurse of 20 plus years, Christy Cheney. Thank you so much for being willing to join our podcast stage free because I think you're amazing. I think you have so much to offer to tell and teach people how to meet the medicine halfway. And I want people to meet you because you played a pivotal role, a critical role in saving my life. Oh, thank you, Loriana. I'm so excited to be here as well. Um, and definitely have, ready to help educate and empower the other patients that you touch along the way. Thank you. Well, first let's start and introduce, let's share how we met. Um, I was diagnosed with AML leukemia. I got the privilege and I say, not that I wanted leukemia, but if, <laughs> if I was going to fight it, 5B, the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins was one of the best places in the world I felt I could have been. Um, I agree with that. And when I met you, I had had a Hickman put in my chest first to for the port, which is like they put under the chest to get the catheter to go for the chemo to go right into my heart. Am I saying this correctly? You are saying this correctly. But then at some point, the Hickman got infected and they come and rip it out like, you know, they put it in nice and delicate while you're under some sort of sedation, but they rip it out like just ripping a garden hose. Like, And then they tell me I need a pick line, a pick line that goes into my arm. And that means because I need blood drawn every day, twice a day. And who came to my rescue every day? Pick line, Christy. <laughs> tell me, tell me about our encounters. Well, to say you were nervous would be an understatement. You were definitely very fearful of it. Uh, Definitely had the fear of needles and what was going to be undergoing with that process. I think we kind of walked through it, kind of talked you through, explained the procedure. And fortunately for the both of us, it was very successful upon, <laughs> upon the first attempt. So I think that kind of helped ease some of your anxiety after that. And you talk about my anxiety. You have seen me go through so much trauma. I mean, we bonded and I'm going to get back to more of the pick line stuff in a minute. But we really bonded. I bonded with so many of the nurses on that hall because you all became my family. And it was just amazing to watch you in action and all of them in action. How you really, I don't, I don't know how you do it, but you make everyone feel like your family and you take responsibility for us, but you care for us in ways like we are your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. And, um, and to watch somebody who you connected with like me go through such trauma, how did that impact you? Well, I mean, it definitely takes a toll on everybody. And I think being a nurse, you know, the first thing that I always learned is, you know, you want to do unto others as you want done unto yourself. Uh, that was definitely something my dad drilled in us girls. So I think when you 
take on a patient and you can respect that their whole world is in the blink of an eye being turned upside down, you know, you just know that you're going to make a meaningful impact on the journey ahead for them. And however you can do that to help them along the way, I think is the oath that we undertake. And, you know, so we want to, you know, I know we're not supposed to, they say, you know, always get so close to your patients, but I feel like it's kind of hard not to, because, you know, we're all kind of in this together. And so we're all working for the same aspect. So it's like, when you can feel that you can, your patients can trust you, then I think it helps them open up to be more successful in their care. So, you know, they're not afraid to tell you the little things or the big things. And then you get to pick up on some of those things and kind of try to stop things as they happen before they happen. So I think it's, you know, it's a big step to take for these patients to kind of put their trust in someone that they just met, especially when they're being faced with such a, you know, scary disease that is being presented to them. Yeah. And we're talking a lot about breast cancer this month because it is October when we're recording this. Um, But so much talk about breast cancer. And I always say, I'm going to advocate for breast cancer patients because I'm a survivor. But what about my blood cancer patients? What about people like us where there's not as many resources? Nobody's having like, instead of pink outs, nobody's having orange outs. Um, Mm -hmm. But people forget. And I had no idea when I reported as a medical reporter, cancer stories over and over. I never knew until I was in that position that you, in some cases, you're like living there. Like I live there. I needed, I, I know they say, don't get too close to your patients, but if it wasn't for you and different nurses on the hall who made me like family, who's going to, when you're there for three, four months or a year or whatever, the amount of time with leukemia, who's going to wash your clothes? I remember asking you, Hey, when you go to the grocery store, can I don't like the food here. Remember me complaining? <laughs> like the medical care is amazing, but can you get me like a few avocados so I can just eat it like with a spoon? Mm-hmm. Um, people forget yeah. how hard the blood cancer space is. It's all hard. I'm not taking away from the breast cancer space, but it's different because you're like camped out there. I know. Definitely. A lot of our patients, as you well know, are there for months at a time. And even when they get to leave, they pretty much have to stay within a certain time frame of being able to get back to the hospital if they need to. And that, you know, undergoes for about a year, usually, if not longer. So uh, however we can try to help navigate that for our patients to the best that we can to help give them that hope and that willingness to kind of keep going forward and forward each day uh, to help better their care. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we need them to also be an advocate for themselves and want to get better for themselves. So those support groups, you know, I think we could always, you know, find a, another way to help a new survivorship is a big thing in uh, medicine and trying to, you know, initiate that and um, move forward with that to allow, you know, those who are recovery kind of help also be an advocate for another patient that may be undergoing the same process. So you have seven steps of empowerment for a patient, but before we get to that, I'm still obsessed with the pick line story because I want to tell the rest of the story that, and and you can fill in that when, you know, there should be like a one stick standard, but after your veins are constantly being poked and the Hickman is out, the Hickman's in your chest. So you're not getting constantly poked for the blood draws, but once that gets infected and you have that pick line or you need blood drawn twice a day in the hospital, they're constantly, you know, you get, you do get traumatized as a patient when someone's constantly looking and, or they'll say, oh, this is my, oh, this is going to be hard. And I'm like, oh, 
please don't say that. This is not helping. And so finally, when I realized, and for everyone listening, Christy became like, she's pick line Christy. When I used to chase her down the hall and be like, when is your day off? Because I need to know, because I would have anxiety on your day off. That's how attached I got to you. Because only you could find my vein. And only you could, you were like magical. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> but it really did, um, I mean, all the nurses were great, but you get an attachment and it, it's really hard. And I don't know how it was on you because you have a family and I knew you need to go home to your kids and your husband. But I literally would cry to you like, why do you need to be off tomorrow? <laughs> I know, right? Some days, you know, we live and breathe it too. But, you know, we enjoy being there too and knowing that we help you know, others in need. So it's definitely, and it's interesting that you say that too, Loriana, because, you know, as my kids have gotten older, it's so relevant to how they look at, you know, I guess of being their mother, but, um, you know, if they're going to be late or something's going to happen, they're like, no, 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 you can't be late. You got to go to work. You got to take care of the patients. Like, it's just, I guess, interesting to see, you know, how they perceive being, you know, their mother as a nurse as well and recognizing that, you know, it's like a two-way street. Like I need to give at home, but I also give elsewhere. And so they, uh, they appreciate that. And they're always worried, like, you gotta go to work. Are you going to be late? You're going to be late. Like if, if I have to take them in later for a doctor visit or something like that, they're always like, can't dad take us? Can't dad take us? And I'm always like, oh That's my. beautiful. Well, I think yeah. our kids, like, because my son, Gabriel, uh, I don't remember the age of your kids, but my, but Gabriel, I used to always, he was 18 months to almost three years when I was in the hospital and I used to cry. And I, I don't remember if you were with me when I reunited with him and he. I wasn't with you, but we were, we were prepared. We were prepping for it because it was going to be after some time that you hadn't seen him and what it was going to be like. And my youngest, I think they were around the same age. So Grant's 11. So I think they were kind of close in age, Gabriel and my youngest. So I think we were kind of wondering how to like, I think we talked about books too, about the reading along books from Hallmark and stuff on how that you can help still be there with them even when you're not there. So. Yes. And you would always say, boys, don't forget their moms. Mm -hmm. And if he does, I mean, you were saying it in a delicate way because he did forget me in some way. We had to reestablish a relationship, but you helped give me those tools. Um, so I'm so grateful, but we always shared. And that's what I love. Like nurses are so important that they connect with you and make you feel like family. We, you talked about your kids and both of our, your kids and like Gabriel is the same way. He worries about, he doesn't want me to go on a trip, but if I'm going to advocate and help patients, he's like, okay, but come back quickly. I just go save a few people and come right back. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure your kids feel the same way. Oh yeah. They do. It's well, funny. I want to run through, tell me before we break them down, just run through the seven steps to empower a patient. Okay. So first step is open communication. Second is active participation. Third is physical activity. Fourth is prehab. And five is emotional well-being. And six is self-advocacy. And seven is the support system. And that is a lot, but it, it, you really all need all of that in place. I always say you have to be your own hero and meet the medicine halfway. Like we can count on you to do so much for us, but we have to meet you halfway. So first, let's start with open communication. Give me the advice of why we need to have open communication, because sometimes I know I'm a chatterbox, but not every patient can be that open with their nurse or doctor. 
So by being open, it helps us kind of identify what exactly may be going on, what you're feeling, what resources that we may need to be able to bring in to kind of help move you through the path that you're going forward and to kind of help get you the answers that you may need. It helps us identify what may be going wrong or what may be going right and how we can improve that process for our patients. So if we have doubts that we, it's, it's important to share those doubts and, and be as transparent because if I say, I don't think we're going to be able to pay for this, you might be able to connect me to resources mm-hmm. like financial resources. So being open, even if it means you have to be humble, you've seen it all, you've heard it all. Just be, I, I say, just share what's on your heart, share what you're going through. Not that you're our psychiatrist, but you can <laughs> at least direct us to the right people. Although I have cried to you a million times. Okay. <laughs> step two and three Uh, participation in physical activity. Again, I said be an equal partner in your own success and meet the medicine halfway. So break down why participation and physical activity are so important. It helps educate yourself. It helps you um, know more about your condition and your treatment options. It, you know, knowledge is power. So it helps you make informed decisions and be more engaged in your care. So really get involved and participate and we can't just count. I mean, of, of course, we count on you to do a lot, but we can't just be like, Christy's here, Dr. Levis is here, and I'm just going to sit here and let the medicine do the work. Right. Because, you know, sometimes there are other options or something that you may see is maybe more beneficial that you're just not sure of. And if you bring that forward, it can kind of help the medical team give you the, you know, pros and cons or the reasons why or why not that that, you know, that that plan is something worth implementing or something, you know, that may be later and down the road that you may need. Okay. Physical activity is number three. So definitely physical activity. You know, I definitely worked with one provider, you know, every day in bed, they used to say a seven days worth of rehab. So, you know, just getting up moving, it helps your lungs. It helps your, your mobility status. You know, it helps with being able to even eat, you know, small meals. It helps keep your digestive system moving definitely helps with when you're working, exercising, you know, we forget sometimes I think the little exercise that we do just on a day to day, just walking up the stairs, you know, to go to your, you know, your bedroom or walking out to get the mail. You know, sometimes we may think that we're not as active as we could be, but even those little activities really help go a long way, especially when you're in the hospital. So just, you know, getting up in the chair you know, walking around the unit, whatever you can kind of do to kind of keep things moving is definitely what's best for your body. Well, I remember, well, Dr. Levis, he's very transparent. So you'll laugh at this quote, but he is, I love him that he's transparent and he's so knowledgeable, but I remember him saying, if you don't get up and walk, the pneumonia can take you before the cancer does. So get up. Cause I, I'm the kind of person that's how I get motivated. Like, tell me why I have to do something. Not everyone wants to hear the why I want to hear the why. And that's what he said. You have to get up. But I, tell me, I want to hear that statistic again, because it's changed since I heard it in 2014. <laughs> I would always say one day in bed sets you back four days in muscle strength, four days in bed sets you back an entire month. But the number has changed to one day in bed sets you back. Uh, one day in bed, I used to hear one of the providers say would be seven days worth of rehab. So, you know, just working on that incentive, even just working on an incentive spirometer, if you can't, those days you may not be able to get out of bed, it just helps with you know, exercising your lungs. So just knowing that there's other ways you can kind of exercise while in bed. So, you know, working really closely to get that physical activity, whether you need, you know, a physical therapist to kind of give you some tools 
or just some exercise ideas can really help. And for me, I found I'm not discouraging people from because people legitimately need pain meds when they're going through cancer treatment because it's hard. But what I found and for anybody listening is I knew I needed to be physically active. I knew there's studies that say it can improve your outcome and improve success rates of chemo. But at the same time, um, if I took pain meds, I realized it created this vicious cycle for me. This is just my personal journey that I was too tired to get out of the bed the next day to walk. And so I had to try to say, okay, when do I really need it? And when can I do some stretching or meditation or find other ways? Um, mm-hmm. is, is that something that you may, like when you talk to patients, like, hey, you're good, because it's harder to get people up once you've had the pain meds. Right. And that's, and that's definitely going to be patient specific on all accounts. Uh, sometimes, you know, if they're in too much pain to get out of bed, they're not going to get out of bed unless their pain is somewhat controlled. So there's always that person knowing their body and what may be, you know, a helpful, you know, regimen for them to still get them moving. And then what may not be, you know, as helpful because it puts them down, you know, under so much where they're too tired. So there's definitely a a balance that you probably have to kind of identify between you and your medical team. And your next one, prehabilitation, prehab to fab. I love saying prehab. We Actually, before you, uh, a few episodes ago, we had a whole show on prehab uh, because it is so important. So give me a little snippet of that for those who weren't able to listen to that episode. So prehab is definitely working and including that exercise into your daily routine, your nutrition, keeping um, a key on what your stress level may be. Um, That's definitely vital to the care of your, you know, vital component to your care. You know, prehab can definitely prepare your body for its treatment and improve its effectiveness. It definitely kind of goes along with the healthcare team and how they can also help support you. And they they haven't always talked about prehab. I used to tell my friend Amy when I was in the hospital and Dr. Levis taught me about prehab. I'm like, when I type it, it autocorrects to rehab. Now mm-hmm. it finally does say prehab. Like it's pop. You're hearing more and more about it. I came up with my three P protocol with the help of Dr. Levis. You have to, he would say, you have to prepare yourself for illness. So you present well to your medical team. So you're better positioned to prevail. He would always tell me this is, I'm not telling you like, oh, this is a guarantee you're going to survive. But the more fit you show up, the more fit you stay or the more physically active and you continue to prehab, the better success stories we see. So he would always, again, I always turn to him for more inspiration, you and Dr. Levis and many of the nurses, because I was reporting from my bedside. So I love that you're supporting that. Um, the next one you talk about, we are number four, emotional well-being, mm-hmm. psycho-oncology. It's such an emerging field. It's so important. Share with me about the emotional well-being that patients really need to recognize. So our emotional health definitely plays a huge role. And it's that journey through cancer. It can be isolating and emotionally draining. You never know the outcome or what you're going to expect. Um, so seeking that support, whether it's through healthcare support groups, you know, another, su- you know, supported friend that you may be able to confide in can really kind of help balance you as you move forward in the, in the, per- in the process of what you're going through. So I think that sometimes, you know, hope is a big thing. So, you know, never giving up on that hope definitely helps us move forward. And I feel that sometimes, you know, when patients feel like they don't have hope, then, you know then that kind of leads to why do I need to get out of bed and why do I have to do this? So, you know, keeping tabs on how you're feeling and being able to communicate any of those feelings that you're having with someone, whether, like I said, healthcare friend, you know, really can help kind of 
move you forward and help you think more positively about what's up ahead. Because it's an emotional fight too. I mean, you, I'm sure you see it every time you walk into a room, it's not just a physical fight, it's emotional. And as I, when I started talking, uh, you know, PTSD and depression that I have, and I would, Mm -hmm. people said, nobody's ever going to listen to you. It doesn't make money. I'm like, well, it will make money because if someone, if you can help me mentally remove the noise, focus on the fight, then I come, it's compliance. I stay in the game. I stay on Mm -hmm. treatment and we all win. So Mm -hmm. finally, I'm glad, and I'm sure you're probably happy over the years to see that there's more focus on, let's look at the whole patient, the mental well-being. it matters. That's right. Cause I mean, we all, every part of us, you know, works off of another part. So when we can kind of keep all of us, all of our systems in check, it kind of continues to help balance things and continue to move forward as we move along the process. And, you know, recognizing too, that the emotional support is a big thing, you know, also for their caregiver, you know, cause they're may not be physically going through the exact same thing, but sometimes they are also going through it emotionally. So kind of having that, you know, foundation with, you know, yourself and with your caregiver and support systems can really kind of help motivate the both, you know, both parties to. And get involved. Early. I mean, at the beginning, you're always, you're so focused on let's cure the cancer and it's all the medical, but really your mental well-being. if you're stressed, you're increasing inflammation and inflammation can cause tumor growth. I've been doing mm-hmm. all this research because, you know, now I want to study, like, how did I land here? How do I help myself? Because I, you have seen me over the years. I struggle with PTSD and depression. And I think mm-hmm. part of the reason is it, it wasn't taken care of ahead of time. I, it got out of control because my whole focus was just survival and just the medicine. So I'm glad we're talking about that. You're number six and number seven, self-advocacy and the support system. Talk to me about those two. Um, why patients, you need them to advocate. And you advocate for us too, but we have to help you. Right. So, you know, self-advocacy, being your own advocate, um, if at any point you ever have any doubts about your treatment, you should never hesitate to talk to somebody, talk to your healthcare provider, reach out to anyone else that you may think may be a helpful second opinion. Um, Because at the end of the day, everything, we need your consent. So you have to be able to feel comfortable with what you're choosing and how you're going to go about that. So, you know, and you know yourself. So, I think sometimes patients really get to know themselves. So, you know, being open about how they're feeling or what they're going through or what their symptoms are can really kind of open our eyes to where we need to, what the next step may be for them. So definitely understanding and, you know, advocating for themselves and understanding what their, you know, the process is, is moving forward. Absolutely. I mean, you have to stand up for yourself in healthcare. I learned in advocacy myself the, the term shared decision-making because so many times patients go and it's like, well, just tell me what I should do. Like, and, mm-hmm. and many times I did rely on Dr. Levis. He's brilliant. He's world-renowned, but you may not always end up in a, in an office, someone world-renowned and you, either way, you still need to share what your thoughts and how you can advocate. Like, why are we not running this test or why are we running this test? Mm-hmm. How, is there a trial? I really want to look for a trial or I'm not interested, but advocating for what your beliefs are and where you stand is so important. The last one I love, because I'm always talking about building a pit crew, waving the flag. How hard do you find it for patients to actually ask for help and build their own support system? Sometimes I find that patients have a hard time doing it. They feel like they don't want to be a burden on their loved ones. But I think they understand through help with, you know, with the nursing team and their medical team and physicians 
they recognize that they need that help and support along the way. And their support group almost needs that themselves. You know, they, they want to feel that they're participating in their loved ones, you know, care and help them, you know, to their, you know, healing powers with them. So sometimes I think, you know, our caregivers kind of need that too. They want to feel that they can do something to help their patient, you know, their caregiver. I remember it's important to build a support system and also be transparent. And I know not everybody can be an open book like I am, but I remember sitting at Johns Hopkins and my husband was, he would work during the day. And then at night, his, he would come back, I say home, but back to my room and his friends would call me like, Hey man, what can we do for you? Mind you, we're about to lose our house. He's like, no man, we're good. We're good. My head spun around like the exorcist. I was like, we are not good. We're about to lose our house. Like, and he's like, they don't need to know that. Yeah, they do. Like at that point when you're desperate, have a GoFundMe. I'm okay with it because if it's going to save my house and save my family, you hit rock bottom and you'll be open. And it may not be that drastic for everybody, but asking for help can make a difference. It's okay to ask for help. I mean, I think that sometimes, you know, patients think, you know, anybody, I mean, even myself included, sometimes it's like, you know, even in nursing, you know, it's like, if I ask for help, you know, I'm not keeping up or, you know, is it a sign of weakness? But, you know, truly it's a sign of strength because, you know, we're all in this together and we all kind of have to work together to help each other through the process, no matter what department we're in or where we're at in our life. Uh, You know, that's why we have support systems out there and our friends and our colleagues. And I think that that's a big, big part of who any of us are. So, you know, even your kids and, you know, I think, you know, sometimes they're like, I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to ask the teacher. I don't want to, well, you know, doesn't matter who we are. We have to ask for help when we need it because we don't want to get to that point where we've, you know, we're sinking and it's, you know, even harder to get back up. Yeah. I, I have no trouble after two cancers asking for help. Two quick stories <laughs> that might make you laugh. I may have put them on social media, but first when my sister went through breast cancer last year, she was like, I'm not, I'm not getting a GoFundMe. I don't want people to know. And I understand I'm just mimicking my sister because we bicker. I love her and we, we have this love bickering relationship. And I'm like, okay, but I can't keep donating. I can't support you guys. I have my own bills and I'm on payment plans with half these people. So finally she surrendered and somebody, you know, different people donated and they were able to get through that year and pay their bills. But the second thing I did is I had to drive her to her treatment and I am terrible in traffic. And so I made, I had my friend Amy make a magnet to put on the side of the car that said, get uh, move out of the way. And it said headed to chemo. Because I drive terrible, nobody would move over. And my sister's like, why do you have to be so extra? I said, listen, I need help. I have no problem waving the flag or waving my arm out the window with a magnet so people will move over, like headed to chemo. Maybe on the streets of Atlanta, they'll show some compassion and move over the one of the eight lanes of 285. So my sister, I understand not everyone can ask for help, but I had to tell her, if you want to get to treatment, you're going to have to let me ask for help from other drivers. So it can come in many forms. And, um, it's just so important to know that I always say my story could be your story. So the help you're giving me today, you might need tomorrow. So help mm-hmm. others because they might be helping you the next day. It's really a positive cycle of giving and kindness. Yes. So is. is there any final, before we go, any final thoughts? Um, there are patients out there right now fighting and listening to this and looking from some sort of inspiration, like as a nurse, what, what phrase or what can you just tell them before we go? 
you know, being a nurse, I feel is, you know, it's definitely meaningful and it's definitely impactful for us to feel that we can make an improvement on someone else's life and be there to help them through these times. Um, you know, we're also in this fight with them through their journeys. So, you know, at any point in time, they need anything, you know, that's why we're here. We, you know, we feel it was, it's definitely something that I think is embedded in us. I think that we enjoy feeling like we can make a difference in someone's life. And that's what we kind of work towards. And while doing that, making it pain-free as much as we can and offering any support that they may need through that process. Well, we are grateful for you. We know it is not an easy job that over the years, everyone's doing more with less, taking on more patients at a time and doing so much, especially through the pandemic and beyond. So God bless you. Thank you so much for being my shero, my hero, and just a hero to so many people, you and all the other nurses in healthcare. Um, we are in this together. So for anyone listening to Stage Free, again, our mission of Stage Free is to help you master survival. I'm still trying to master it myself. I struggle. And I feel like the more I learn from experts along the way, I can't keep it to myself. I want to share it with you. So I want to give you the tools you need for success. And we hope at the end that you feel empowered, educated, and informed in your own journey. And as Christy said, remember, we are all in this together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Stage Free. Join us every week for a new podcast featuring thought leaders and experts who will help cancer survivors not only survive, but ultimately thrive throughout treatment and recovery as they learn how to master survival. Learn more about us at armupforlife.org.